0: Welcome to episode number 50 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. We're creating a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. today's episode, we're talking about dust explosion hazards in pharmaceutical industries. And to do that, we have on the call Dr. Shok Dasadar, Vice President of Dust Inflammability Testing and Consulting Services at Fausking Associates and a fellow engineer at Westinghouse Electric Company. Dr. Shok, let me say thank you for coming on and welcoming you back to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Well, thanks for having me back, Chris. Always a pleasure. So Dr. Dassler has extensive background in combustible dust, uh, particularly around combustible dust testing and dust hazard analysis. Although well, he's been in this industry for a, a long time and has you know seen, seen most of what goes on in these industries. He's a member of several NFPA technical committees. He's the chair of ASTM E27 Committee on the Hazard Potential of Chemicals. We actually had him on the podcast. We were just talking about this before but 43 episodes ago so 43 weeks ago on number seven on dust hazard analysis and explosion prevention so yeah really excited to have you back and talking about this this topic of pharmaceutical industries and the dust explosion hazards in them
1: sure thanks for having me back uh, pharmaceutical industries have a, have a slightly different uh, situation where the the, the the field of pharmaceutical industry there's there's the large ones of course the large multinationals but there's also the smaller companies as well and and in the, in the name of pharmaceutical or the topic of pharmaceutical goes beyond just you know, the typical aspirin or, or, or you know, other type of drug that you think of, over-the-counter drug, or even a prescribed medical drug. You think about vitamins, animal feed products, animal, animal pharmaceuticals also come into play here, uh, but they have a unique, uh, unique challenge where they don't necessarily process one material in one location all the time.
0: Right. So, and the actual genesis of this particular topic was from a question from the community. So, we, we take questions at dustsafetyscience.com slash ask, A-S-K, um, and we try to, to address those on the podcast and bring in you know experts that work in those fields. this particular instance, um, we got a question that was, how would you evaluate dust issues from the pharmaceutical industry in terms of the final product that's produced? Um, keeping in mind, the product range is really diverse. And I'll paraphrase here. But, uh, you know, really looking at, okay, we have all this diverse product lines, um, some of them are proprietary, uh, and there may be insufficient test data, you know, what do we do with regards to combustible dust hazards? And I've heard this question asked before, so I really want to get, you know, an expert on combustible dust testing, an expert on hazard analysis on to talk about it. So, those that are interested in, in Dr. shoke's background, we covered it in, in Episode 7 of the podcast, but in terms of today, Ash- Ashok. Maybe just go through what does a you know a typical processing line in a pharmaceutical plant look like? I know you just mentioned that there are pretty various in size and you know scope of what they're doing, but is there a general processing line that might be in place? Sure,
1: yeah, absolutely. You know, there there's usually you know, and this is you know, broad brushstrokes, thirty thousand foot view. So uh, I don't want to offend anybody when I mentioned this, and then all of a sudden my pharmaceutical line doesn't look like that at all. Um, typically, what you know, it's, it's, it's like any other real chemical line or process system. It, it comes out with, let's say, some sort of reactor system, whether it's a fermenter or some sort of batch reactor. And, and the industry is still pretty much batch reactor driven as opposed to, you know, CSTR or plug flow type of process. Now, there's the odd exception, but primarily, uh, sort of like the 80 20 rule, it's still primarily, you know, batch reactor type of situation, and then you have introduction of raw ingredients into the reactor, you have the reaction occurring, either it's uh, most likely in a wet state, uh, either a water or or a solvent type of chemical being used. That uh, reacted material then goes to some sort of drying process after the reaction is finished. Uh, Either it could be some sort of autoclave where you're, you're drying material off, it could be some sort of centrifugal uh, process where you're just dewatering. Uh, it could also be some sort of spray drying process. And there's other types of drying processes that occur. Then the material is, you know, solid material maybe from the precipitate is then uh, taken and then uh, uh, collected. And, and that collection usually occurs in some sort of uh, cyclonic action with fines going to a dust collector of some sort. And that's a a very, very broad Description and may not necessarily fall under every single pharmaceutical process, but there are you know minor nuances there, but that's pretty much typically the minimal bare bones uh, skeleton of what a uh, pharmaceutical line occurs like and and it actually has very similar a similar nature to other type of fine chemical manufacturing as
0: well. That makes sense, and so you you mentioned a typical line might have you know a reactor, a dryer, and then a collection system with the fines being. Collected out to, to a dust collector. Um, where are the, the hazardous areas typically in these installations, then with regards to combustible dust? Where are the, the most hazardous areas? Sure. And, and, and the most hazardous areas would be, I think, the, the beginning stage is where
1: you're introducing, maybe if you're introducing a, a dry powder into a, um, a tank, uh, that, that tank has a certain, maybe if it has water in it already, you're introducing dry powder. Uh, if you're mixing in the tank, you might have water mist and you have dry powder falling through it. You know, there's a possibility of static discharges. That uh, hazard is even further compounded if that medium in the bottom of the tank is not water, but is a flammable solvent. And you're you're putting mixing in multiple dry ingredients into a vat of flammable solvent. There's a huge hazard there. Um, and then later on in the process once this is wet it's not so much of a hazard uh, from a dust point of view you might have a, a flash fire or solvent vapor you know deflagration vapor flammability issue but beyond that looking at dry powders alone it's after the dewatering stage or the, or the removal of the solvent maybe you're vacuum drying this uh, the, the precipitate in order to get the um, active ingredient that you're looking for uh, then you have this material that you then need to dry out in that drying stage, whether it's a spray dryer or a drum dryer or some other form, um, you might have a situation where you now have suspended dust. Uh, This could also occur as if you had several dry ingredients that you're mixing together. Maybe you have some sort of V-mixer or some sort of other cylindrical mixing with paddles that you're doing. You have an opportunity for suspended dust. And then you usually end up dumping this material into a process line where you're going to either pelletize it or ship it out in some sort of bulk container to another location, and at that location, those transfer points also have a lot of uh, combustible dust hazards. And of course, if you have any cyclones or uh, bag houses or, or cartridge filter areas to collect fugitive uh, materials or even collect the final product for, for then bagging, you have hazards there. So pretty much in a lot of steps where you have dry material, you're going to have these dust issues because you're always going to deal with, with fine particles.
0: Right. So I kind of pulled out five there. The dry powder unloading at the sort of inlet end, then you have a reaction stage. And if the reaction stage results in kind of a wet mixture, you may not have a, a dust explosion hazard. You may have other hazards, but you may not have a dust explosion hazard. But on the other side, once you do the drying again, then that's kind of the second point where you, you may have a hazard if it's suspended in a spray dryer or a piece of equipment. And then further downstream, you know, bulk unloading or bulk loading of that product if you have fugitive dust emissions in that process or even as you mentioned static electricity during the loading process and then any of the equipment that's handling that powder so anything from cyclones to dust collectors are kind of the main areas you'd be looking at um, the the question specifically into the the podcast area was on what challenges arise with the diverse type of products so can you go through that do you see that very much in pharmaceutical industries where you have this line
1: Oh, all the time. I mean, and quite frankly, the pharmaceutical industry isn't unique in this type of problem. Uh, you get this in the agricultural industry, well as well, where you have uh, food manufacturers that might be, you know, doing one line of cereal uh, one one month, and then on the same line, change their formulation, change um, the flavoring, and all of a sudden do a, a similar line of cereal, for example, uh, or they might be making one line of you know the, the the breakfast power bar type of thing that you'd eat, you know, the energy bars. And then, you know, a month later on, they're changing that line to create another another type of formulation. So the fact is that, you know, these people don't just have one formulation traveling from beginning to the end. That same process, those same connection or chain of unit operations that create uh, a, a drug uh, an excipient, maybe it's not the active pharmaceutical ingredient, but it might be an excipient that's being used to then package into a pill uh, or a formulation itself. You know, they might change using the same unit operation. So the main issue is that I have three hundred, you know, pro- I have three hundred possible reagents that I'm going to be using in this that then could create a, a huge number of different intermediates that might have you know another you know one hundred different possible products that I might be generating, how do I then design for the all you know permutations that are possible? And 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 as you know, you know, unlike dealing with vapors and gases, which are you know a molecule of fuel reacting with a molecule of oxygen to create a, a deflagration event, here we have a solid particle uh, that, you know, particle size distribution, particle morphology, you know, water content, solvent content will all vary the explosibility parameters that are that are being studied and looked at. So, by and large, a lot of the the way to tackle this is actually to create a safety envelope. So you know that, for example, looking at the process that I'm dealing with, the typical powders and distributions, uh, I you know of the three hundred, maybe I have fifty of those tested, and I break those fifty up into different families of chemicals or molecules, and I have them tested, and I find that. For a given family of materials, You know the, the Pmax doesn't exceed 8 bar. The KST never exceeds 70, uh, 75 bar. The, um, the MIE never goes below you know, 30 millijoules. and uh, The MEC never goes below 100 grams per cubic meter. You use these values to then design your mitigation and prevention strategy for this process and then keep that in mind. And then, as new molecules are being generated, uh, as new ingredients are being substituted, you'd have them tested to see if they compromise that envelope that you had created or not. And if they do compromise it, then it might be a situation where you know alternative approaches have to be looked at, or maybe alternative materials have to be looked
0: at. Yeah, I really like that concept, and I hadn't heard it put that way of a safety envelope. But I think that's a great way to do it. So. When somebody asks me, you know, asks me, and it, it happens actually quite a bit, and I'm sure you get the same question. You know, I have I have all these different materials. Um, do I need to test them all? And I've never had a good answer. But I think the answer is, from what you're saying, is you need to test enough to know the envelope of safety that you need.
1: Correct, correct. There's no reason to test everything. I mean, that would be you know,
0: some of these plants have you know a
1: thousand chemicals, and you know, you may as well shut down the plant if you're going to have to pay to, uh, to to test all that material. It, it's just and, you know, finding a lab to do all those materials will take you years to get through all that. There's no, there's no practical way to, to tackle that. But you can break it down into families, break it down into particle size distributions, create a little test matrix, and then strategically test from that matrix to see if you can create, um, you know, a, a bellwether to... Um, th- this family of materials never really exceeds this, this explosion severity or this ignition sensitivity level.
0: Find the, the MIE, the MEC, the PMAX, and the KSTs from that safety envelope. Um, add a safety factor to that. That gives you your design envelope. And then, like you said, you should probably spot check this you know, every once in a while, especially if you're introducing something that's drastically new. Absolutely. And, and,
1: and for a lot of companies, what I ask them to do is that you know if it's a chemical that you're receiving, then put the onus on your supplier to provide you with this information. Um, you don't have to take on the burden yourself let them take that burden on for you and of course you know uh, we, we don't like talking about money but at the same time what they can do is they can just roll in the cost of acquiring that data into the sale price of you know if, if you're buying seven tons ten tons of one material and it's a, a, a an ingredient that's going to be used in your formulation you know the cost of the actual testing might be insignificant to the supplier who's selling it they might be able to so, sort of defer the cost by mixing it into the actual price of you know, the item that you're creating. The problem then comes in is the, uh, the formula for the product that you're producing, because you're bearing that cost yourself then. Um, and if you're producing a lot of different uh, molecules, where do you start off? I mean, uh, we have a situation where they've just moving from the uh, pilot, or not even the pilot, they're moving from the, the benchtop formulation a kilo lab formulation where they're not making just gram quantities of material anymore they're making kilogram quantities of material then they're jumping up from the kilogram quality kilogram qualities of, of material down to maybe the, the tens of kilograms of material in the pilot scale and then after the pilot scale run goes through then they go into an industrial scale of production which is even further they may not have sufficient material being developed at that that laboratory um, top scale where they're doing maybe just hundred 200 300 grams of material going up to the kilogram scale of lab um, you know that 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 lab scale still needs to have protection but they just don't have enough material generated to to provide for testing so that also creates an issue
0: and what do you do in that circumstance because I was even just two weeks ago I was presenting at a dust collector training seminar down in Kentucky for BWF and biotech and I had that question um, twice of small research labs that are only generating. Um, small amounts. So what's the the best way to move forward in in that circumstance? I I think at that point, the best is
1: to go to literature and use a, again, safety envelope concept saying that typically I I won't exceed, for example, a given molecule, given the nature and family of it, the data shows that none of these KSTs, Pmax values, let's say exceed 300 bar meter per second. They never exceed nine bar overpressure okay i'm going to use that in my strategy as as input data to devise a methodology for you know sourcing that kilogram scale lab equipment so if i'm only looking at a smaller dust collector maybe i'll design it to handle 300 bar meter per second maybe at that level i'll use more of a suppression system as opposed to a venting system or my use a combined venting and suppression system so i can you know, properly tackle this or maybe I won't even do any of that at all but use a total inerting system and run everything under nitrogen because the volumes are still small enough that I can actually effectively nitrogen inert and I don't have to go to deflagration protection uh, through suppression or venting so those kind of strategies really need to be looked at and maybe looking at a safety envelope approach that way you can change various different chemistries as you need to and still realize that you know that unit op- that, that capital purchase that I made for this unit operation has a longer uh, longevity in, in in the actual process it's not a i'm not looking at a, a five year return on investment um, this actually has a ten year life so maybe a a seven year return on investment is perfectly fine that kind of i mean I'm just pulling off numbers for example but but because you're using a safety envelope approach your return on investment doesn't have a smaller return window it has a it has a, like, a much larger return window because you can actually have a piece of equipment that has a longer life
0: okay and do you have any general guidelines that you're putting through to your clients on on the amount of dust that might be needed for let's say uh, you know your standard go no go versus kstp max curve versus kind of the full suite where you you're looking also at mec and mie there is there certain masses sure absolutely for for guidance you know we typically ask for somewhere between 75
1: and 100 grams of material for the go no go test Um, that's to get enough repeats and And for a lot of people that have molecules that are very precious, you know, uh, in in the food industry where, you know, one one ton of material, you know, 1,000 pounds of material might be worth $1. In in the pharmaceutical industry, maybe one pound of material might be worth $1,000. So in in that situation, you really want to minimize the amount of quantity you're sending. So what you might want to do is, even if we might need 100 grams of material or 75 grams of material, you might want to then package it into smaller, you know, 10-gram aliquots that are then sealed, you have a chain of custody, and then we only would use, if we end up proving that it explodes using only 30 grams of material or only using 20 grams of material, then the other 70 grams are still sealed in containers that can then be shipped back to you for use with other research avenues that you're trying to pursue with that molecule. Uh, That way, we're not contaminating the whole sample by opening up and exposing the whole 100 grams. And then maybe maybe when you're in that lower quantity stage and you're looking at more of a nitrogen inerting, maybe you don't have to go to the large you know, 500, 1,000 gram quantities required for KST determination. Maybe you want to do 100 grams for MIE. Maybe you want to do 100 grams for MEC. Maybe you want to do like 100 to 200 grams for LOC determination. That LOC determination and that MIE determination might be more important for you when you're at that bench top scale or that kilogram scale where you can use nitrogen inerting, and then you can wait to do the KST, the MEC testing when you get to larger scale uh, unit operations where you'll have enough material present. In that case, you know, you're going to go to a one ton production environment, in which case you actually do several small batches uh, at the kilogram scale so that you do have enough material to then uh, source the larger type of product.
0: Oh, that's perfect. I even... Even just the, as I mentioned two weeks ago with those questions, I said I, I thought it was 100 grams for go/no go. So it's I'm happy that I I picked up the right number there. Um, I didn't think of the nit- nitrogen inerting, though, which is seems like a great option if you're running a you know benchtop R&D and facility or not facility, but just you know a small kind of single room type of equipment. It might be better just to inert that equipment, prevent the explosion, and then do production protection on your production size equipment. I like that. Absolutely, and and nitrogen
1: can actually be fairly inexpensive. And people think of you know like the getting the cryo tank of nitrogen, and and then padding your system based on the with a cryo tank, or or you're buying pressurized bottles of nitrogen from a compressed gas supplier. what you could do is even just use membrane separation. And if you have adequate plant air at your facility, you can filter that out, put in membrane separation, therefore concentrate the nitrogen that you're dealing with, and then just operate on that concentrated nitrogen that, that you're generating on demand. So that no longer becomes an issue in terms of, oh, I'm going to use hundreds of cubic feet of of nitrogen uh, for this and makes it uneconomical. You know, Maybe a capital investment in a nitrogen separator where you're just using membrane separation
0: might be a better option for a lab. Well, that makes sense. And so just to round off this kind of small amount of material discussion, on the other two cases, so if you're doing... If you want to do PMAX and KST? Uh, is there a you know standard amount like a kilogram or something that will will achieve that?
1: Now, now for most chemicals, um,
0: you know, five hundred grams
1: is is uh, is sufficient because they usually typically peak at around two hundred fifty grams per cubic meter, five hundred grams per cubic meter, and therefore, given the test protocols and doing the the multiple repeat tests that are required, You know, 500 grams is, is enough. 500 grams of testable material. So if you have material that's 500 grams, but you need a lab to process it to sub-75 microns and sub-5% moisture, you might need to send excess of that so that by the time the processing goes through, they'll have 500 grams to test. However, if your material has peaks at 1,250 grams per cubic meter or 1,500 grams per cubic meter... Uh, you might need to have that 1,000 grams of sample sent in.
0: That makes sense. And then if I if we're doing MIE and MEC along with that, that's probably not adding a whole lot of mass, right? Because those are generally small amounts that you're testing.
1: Correct. And, and you know, if you have, for example, we have
0: clients that you know
1: where where we we do talk about that you know one gram is worth a thousand dollars, you know, in terms that's how precious the material is. Maybe you don't necessarily do the whole host of testing. Currently, until you just need to know whether you're compromising that explosion envelope that you want. So instead of you know, you know, doing the three full series in the 20-liter chamber, you definitely nobody does cubic meter testing for um, for pharmaceuticals because they're so so precious. But maybe instead of doing the full full three series, maybe you just do one series and you only you really don't necessarily want the repeat test, you just do the one test. Um, maybe for the MIE testing, instead of 10 shots to uh, ascertain whether the material is a non-explosion, you reduce that to five shots to ascertain whether the material is a non-explosion. So you have, you have low wastage, or I don't want to say wastage, but because you're not doing as many repeat tests, you don't have as many... You reduce the material requirements that are, are necessary to, to get the data and realize that the data is not as concrete as it would be and therefore the margin of safety you need to add might be slightly higher... But there's that
0: trade-off. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's this is why I recommend people go to a, you know, a testing lab that does a lot of this. I know Fowski does a, a lot of these this work on combustible dust testing. It's because they can make recommendations on like this, you know, whether you know, what air bars should you use if you're only doing one series and you're not doing the three shots that are typical in the 20 chamber. Or, you know, can we drop from 10 shots to five on a on a on the uh, MIE testing and things like that. Like those, those are judgment calls that need experience to be made. And, and yeah, groups like yourself and, and others that are out there doing this sort of testing. That's why it's good to, there's also other reasons like sampling and a whole bunch of other reasons why, but uh, you know, those are some of the reasons why going to a, a trusted um, company for this is important. And, and also
1: realize that you're going to have to have that discussion with the lab about this. A lot of people, unfortunately we were in that situation where a lot of people just sort of you know send us the sample and they really don't want to have a communication or a dialogue uh, and that's unfortunate because we could be more you know effective if we can sit down and discuss what you hope to gain out of the testing and why you want to do the test the way you want to do it it's sort of like the difference between you know you can take your own blood pressure uh, you know buy the kit you go to the drugstore and and sit at the machine and get your own blood pressure but unless you talk to someone about that blood pressure you know, what does that really imply for your lifestyle changes or, 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 or other necessities in your, in, your, in your life that you know, medication and whatnot, you really don't have you just have a number. you really don't know where to go with that or, or what the utility of that number is, but by, by taking the time and, and, and sitting down and talking to the, you know, not only our lab but other people, you know, other, other people who operate these labs, sitting down and speaking with them about, as to what the data is going to be used for and why you want the testing done, uh, will go a long way.
0: No, I couldn't agree more so I have three three problems then that we've identified and talked through so far one is around unique products I'm um, having a lot of different products and and you mentioned this isn't just pharmaceutical but really a lot of different industries have the issue and you suggested the safety envelope as a as a way to combat that we talked about the the struggle of having you know only a small amount of material um, to do testing with and where are some options there communication and dialogue with the testing facility I think that's a you know, that's a critical point. So I'm going to put that as 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 problem or challenge number three, even though, you know, even though that transcends um, industries, not specifically pharmaceutical or special component. But we'll put that as, you know, a third kind of challenge. What are some other challenges within these type of industries? So high, we'll call them high value product or pharmaceutical, chemical, um, diverse product set. Are there any other challenges that that come up that you guys have seen?
1: Ah uh, specifically for pharmaceuticals is the potency of the material that you're using. For example, uh, some of these drugs are are you know active pharmaceutical ingredients that have metabolic or can cause metabolic changes in people. So as a lab uh, doing this kind of work and also considering that you know at your facility handling this kind of material, they could have serious you know metabolic biological changes to the people doing the work. So they're hazardous in that sense. It's just not a uh, combustion hazard, but we're looking at the toxicity hazard. And then, as as technicians and scientists and researchers, uh, engineers doing this type of work at a testing facility, we are greatly concerned about the exposure of our own personnel that that are you know doing the work. Uh, what what's their exposure to these these chemicals? And they might be they might be life saving drugs, but they're only life saving drugs to the people that need them in the quantities that are being prescribed. Uh, when you're dealing with it at the you know. 10 gram, 20 gram, 30 gram level, you know, it might be fairly toxic, but you know, in in the in the milligram or, or tenths of a milligram that are required for metabolic activity, they're perfectly fine and they're actually beneficial at that gram level or that tens of gram level, they're actually very, very toxic. We as we as a lab operator have to be very, very worried about that. So we actually have the experience that as we're doing these materials, what protocols and procedures should be put in place, what kind of PPE should our people use when they're doing this type of testing. That's very key. And that's where communication comes in too, because then as you're sending in a sample for this type of testing, you really need to be totally upfront with the lab in terms of what kind of molecule are we dealing with? Um, Not only the active or not only the ingredient or the active ingredient that we're dealing with now, the, the, the product you're sending in for testing, what kind of combustion products could be generated? From this, from this pharmaceutical ingredient. And also at that point too, if a deflagration were to occur at your facility, you know, given the fact that we're being exposed to this type of combustion product, if an uncontrolled deflagration were to occur at your facility, what kind of toxic products could your fellow workers be exposed to in an accident uh, scenario? And so all those types of things come up in the discussion.
0: That's a really good one. So the materials themselves may be more I say dangerous although given what we talk about in this podcast it's probably not a, the the uh, most effective word choice <laughs> um but in terms of toxicity or, or other reactive dangers not just deflagration yeah it's a really good point both of the lab themselves the combustion products can can uh you know if you do the general chemistry on that product you can sort of estimate what the combustion products might be if they're um I don't know if they're a high alkaline or an acidic material that could you know cause burns to the lab personnel um, and also importantly, cause issues to the the facility themselves if they have an explosion or send firefighters in or go in with a fire for themselves. So those are all really good points. Actually, probably weren't their own podcast discuss- discussion to go down that road.
1: <laughs> we could have that. But but for example, let's say like if you're looking at a, a mitigation solution of deflagration venting. If you're deflagration venting to in the out, you have a dust collector or cyclone located outside. Most fire Industries will not do that. They'll actually have it inside the building. Uh, but maybe it's maybe it's not the active pharmaceutical ingredient, but it's the excipient that you're using in your. You know, the excipient's not as expensive as the uh, the uh, the active pharmaceutical ingredient, or it may not be uh, a pharmaceutical that's for uh, human consumption, but it might be a pharmaceutical used for animal consumption, and therefore there's the level of um, of of uh, governance that goes involved in, in in animal husbandry for this is not necessarily the same as. As it is for humans, but let's say if you were to release it to the outside, or if you were using deflagration venting with flame arresting, like flameless venting, on the inside, if the combustion products could be halogenated materials, uh, could be sulfonated materials, you know, there could be, uh, you know, you could be putting out something that could generate hydrogen cyanide, for example. Uh, in which case, the, the mitigation steps you might be looking at is, well, I'm going to be looking at inerting as opposed to suppression or, 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 or mitigation. Uh, at all I'm going to look at you know a prevention type of approach or maybe I will be looking at suppression or containment as an option as opposed to venting or, or flameless venting so the, all those will come into play.
0: Yeah certainly. Anything any other kind of unique challenges you see in these industries? One of the things that I see on the on the on the product on the reactor
1: side for example when you're introducing these these materials is that we do see a little bit higher percentage of of hybrid mixture problems where you actually have uh, solvents that are being used, and uh, you have solvent wet materials that that could be an issue. And then you may not necessarily totally drive off that solvent when you are either center, uh, centrifugation or or vacuum drying or whatever. You may not a hundred percent dry off, so that powder could have some some light volatile materials already associated with it above and beyond. In which case. Um, you know, that inherently hybrid mixture, you know, MECs hybrid mixture, MIEs hybrid you know mixture, KSTP maxes are, are always a, uh, a, a thing to consider. The other thing is that exactly how much solvent is there. If you just do a moisture analysis, some of that could be moisture, some of that could be solvent. How much of it is truly solvent? That's a hard thing to determine. So yeah, that, that that's probably one of the one of the impediments that we see a lot of versus other industries. Of, of things that, well, you know, I, I do have solvent, wet material. What do I do with it now uh, in terms of uh, data collection?
0: And what what is some kind of typical ways or working solutions people are doing in those with with hybrid mixtures? I know they're mentioned in NFPA guidelines, certainly, um, and there's, there's some standard testing protocols. But in practice, how are, how are you seeing testing around those hybrid mixtures on maybe the front end of those pharmaceutical facilities? Sure. So what we try to do primarily in that reactor
1: stage where you're trying to pour powder into a reactor, we actually try to you know, have that discussion and try to simulate the level of, of you know, solvent vapor that could be present uh, during the actual upset scenario. And we try to replicate that solvent concentration within the test vessel Um, at the time of testing so we have an idea and what it could be is that you know if that solvent concentration is high enough the combustibility the flame dynamics of the solvent is what's going to govern the combustion hazard assessment not necessarily the powder itself so but we need to, to have that consideration in there
0: yeah and that will maybe mean a you know a different envelope of safety or you know for different parts of the process i guess
1: Correct. For example, the MIE may no longer be the MIE of the powder material that you're introducing into the reactor, but it might be the MIE of the solvent vapor that you're dealing with. And as a result, maybe a nitrogen blanketed system is more more important for you at this time because MIEs of, of vapors and gases are in the, the tenths of a millijoule range as opposed to a millijoule range.
0: Okay. I mean, that's a that's a great background. I think we've sufficiently answered the the question of how to deal with or at least in a general sense, how to deal with this really wide array of products. We even jump in some different uh, kind of other risks that might come up. So I, I think that's you know been been really helpful, and I've actually learned a, a number of things throughout this discussion. Um, any kind of one thing you want to leave the the listeners off with around this topic of testing or pharmaceutical industries before we kind of cut it for this this episode? Sure. One thing I when we were talking about locs and mies and, and
1: and one of the things that we do in the pharmaceutical industry is that when you do Nitrogen blanketing. We're talking about the, the cost of nitrogen, and you do a typical LOC test for that, uh, you know, blanketing assessment. However, if you do a, a DHA and an engineering review of your process, it might be a situation that you actually end up with a degree of safety if you just even partially inert. You don't necessarily have to fully inert a process because at times when you go down to lower levels of oxygen, the initiating energy level. Goes up higher. So, in other words, let's say if I have, you know, my MIE at twenty-one percent oxygen might be, you know, thirty millijoules. But if my oxygen level were to drop down at fourteen percent, my MIE might now be over a thousand millijoules. Uh, whereas the LOC of the material might be eight percent oxygen. What that goes to tell us is that let's say if I'm in a spray drying operation and the only thing I'm really worried about is electrostatic hazards, perhaps my reaching the LOC level of 8% is not required, I actually do have a margin of safety with 14% oxygen because now all credible ignition sources are eliminated because MIEs are now greater than 1,000 millijoules and my spray drying operation really won't generate static discharges greater than you know 300 millijoules. Hypothetically, just throwing that out there. That kind of analysis really needs to be conducted and that's something that, could be a safeguard for you too, and also decrease the cost of the nitrogen that's required.
0: Oh, I think that's a great way. So I think the the key takeaway from that point is that a, a DHA, which which needs to be is, performed as part of NFPA, but DHA may highlight other solutions or even um, in this case, say partial solution, but that's not really correct, partial inerting that will lead to a solution. Um, the, the hazard analysis can provide those different options that might not be immediately apparent from the outside looking in, right?
1: Uh, a performance-based option, a performance-based solution option.
0: Okay, um, yeah, that was that's a you know a, a great overview of pharmaceutical industries, uh, and I'm I really appreciate getting you back on the podcast. And I know it was so forty three forty three weeks since we <laughs> we last spoke, but uh, I I walk away learning a lot more each time we talk. So hopefully, we won't wait another forty three weeks to get you on the podcast again.
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely, Chris. Pleasure talking to you.
0: Pleasure talking to you too as well. And we'll talk again soon. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney, and Dr. Ashok Dasadar. We've been discussing dust explosion hazards in pharmaceutical industries. This came on the back of a question submitted to the, uh, the podcast question area around pharmaceutical industries. How do you deal with a diverse number of products? How do you deal, deal with the different products? Um, and again, this was submitted at dustsafetyscience.com slash ask. ASK. Uh, if you're interested in asking a question related to pharmaceutical or in any industry handling combustible dust, you can do that there. Bring an expert on like we did today to talk through that process. Um specifically in today's episode, we talked about what a standard, standard uh, standard's probably not the right word, but what a pharmaceutical plant might look like um from reactor to dryer to collecting the material and bagging it and then, you know, sending the fines and stuff through to do dust collector. And we talked about the unique challenges that might arise. So this includes the number and diversity of the products, having only a small amount of material, just communicating with the testing lab itself and the you know, difficulty in categorizing the materials you're dealing with, and the fact that some of the materials may actually pose toxicity or other you know reagent and reactant hazards. Um, all those are sort of unique challenges that, that may apply in pharmaceutical industries. We talked about some ways you can go through better characterizing that. So coming up with a safety envelope to characterize your explosion parameters Throw the the set of materials that you're testing, but not needing to test them all. And we also talked about you know different types of testing that you can do or different ways if you only have small amounts of materials. So I really appreciate having Doctor Shoke on to talk about this topic. Um, Faustine Associates is a is a member company at DustSafetyScience.com. You can find them in the industry directory along with the other you know companies that do testing that are part of that directory. And as I said in the episode, this this kind of topic is pretty complicated and takes a lot of experience. That's really why you should be dealing with a you know a a reputable and experienced testing facility so that they can recommend on sampling they can recommend on you know just getting you some numbers for your your dust but actually helping you figure out what the safety process should be so as always i i really appreciate you and want to say thank you for listening to the dust safety science podcast i hope you have a safe and productive week ahead and i really appreciate all the work that everyone's doing in industries handling combustible dust out there every day